You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. My name is Diana Moxon. On today's show, we are going to be dosy-doing and butterfly-whirling with Jim Thaxter, master caller for the mid-Missouri traditional dancers. He'll be in the studio later on to talk about their spring breakdown event coming up in a couple of weeks. But before then, we head to Arrow Rock for a chat with Quinn Gresham, the producing artistic director for the Lyceum Theatre, now in its 59th season. And somehow, it has been almost a year since he was last on Speaking of the Arts, so a very long overdue. Welcome back, Quinn Gresham. Well, and a long overdue. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Quinn, I noticed that you have a listing on the Internet Movie Database from 2016 when you were in The American Artist, The Life and Times of George Caleb Bingham, in which you played a rowdy drunk. Was that a part you were particularly going after? That is hilarious. I had no idea that that had ranked uh, an IMDb mention. That is funny. I'll have to check that out. It, it, it was a role that uh, I was certainly well suited for. Um, here, here's the, the funny thing about this story. Uh, the White Awake Films folks and the Friends of Arrow Rock did such a beautiful job creating that film. Uh, and uh, they were getting set for a day of filming. And I, I don't know how it came up, but someone ran up to me, literally ran up to me and said, we need a drunk. And I said, what for? And then they explained, you know, for, for, for the, the film itself. And, and then they said, somebody said you'd be good for the part. And that was it. <laughs> I wondered if you'd had to audition. and be Don't blink, you'll miss it. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So this is your 15th season, I believe, with Hard the Lyceum Theatre. that is true, yeah. Um, though your acting credentials go back to the last century, <laughs> well, I do believe. Yeah, I think that was the last time I got a good review, too, actually. <laughs> and you've also directed for the Lyceum, as well as for several other theatre companies, including the Repertory Theatre of St. Louis and Stevens College. And these days you are the producing artistic director for the 416-seat theatre. So which of the no doubt very many bucks stop at the door? of a producing artistic director? I would say most of them eventually do, though there are uh, regularly a, a squadron of, uh, uh, of folks helping uh, do battle with said bucks. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the theater uh, is, is wonderful in so many regards, but probably the, the thing that makes it the most exciting uh, when you're working in the world of theater is the collaborative nature of it. Uh, and so I, I get the, the opportunity to have all of these great conversations with, with our friends that are interested in the work that we're doing. But the truth is there are legions of folks that really actually make the art happen. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm very fortunate uh, to have such an amazing team. We have, uh, on the administrative side, on the artistic side, we have great people that work with us and, and are really committed to making sure that Mid-Missouri has a top-rate professional theater. Now you held your New York City casting for this year's season back in February. And just a month ago, yeah. And local right. auditions also, just the beginning of February, I think right. it was. So talk me through the, how the casting process works. Are you the sole theater at the New York casting, or is it like the big Nashville casting where hundreds of theaters turn up to choose people for their season? It is just us. Uh, we are in a, uh, a room a little bigger than the room we're currently in. Which um, is very small. It is very small, uh, <laughs> for those listening at home. Uh, we, we are, it's, it's our deal. We, uh, we, we, we 
manage the whole process. Essentially, it begins at the beginning of the year, usually January. We put out a breakdown that explains the roles that we're looking for, and this is specifically relating to the New York auditions. Um, and then we receive submissions from talent agents or directly from the artists themselves, and we get somewhere between ten and 12,000 submissions uh, to be considered for our season. And then I go through all of them. I look at every single one of them quickly, but I look at them all. And then we make uh, some determinations about who we want to see. Then Paula Danner, our company manager and casting associate, takes the mess that I have created for her uh, and schedules it so that we then see people for all of the specific roles that we're looking to hire. Uh, During the New York casting process, we probably see about 700 actors, give or take, and whittle that down to the, the final choices. So the, f- the first cull, and you've got the ten to 12,000, you're just looking at headshots, basically, and yeah. deciding if they look like the people It It, it, it largely comes down to that, which always feels tacky. Uh, but I, I, I do uh, look at the resumes very quickly again, look at the top credits on the resumes, look to see where they went to school, and all of those things sort of factor in. You know, sometimes a headshot looks exactly right, uh, and then you look at the resume and you realize that the guy is actually five foot four, and you need him to be 6'2", you know, whatever that is. So... There, there, there's a little bit of reading required beyond just the picture because, as we know, pictures can lie. <laughs> Sounds a bit like the casting for the Bachelor season or something it's like that. It's like that. I never hand out a rose when we select someone, but it is not all that different. <laughs> So you get it down to 700, and then for this season, for example, how many actors were you looking for? Probably uh, at the end of the day, because we have a lot of actors that will move from one production into another. Uh, it's probably about 60-ish and then you're also casting locally, so presumably some of those 60 you are finding locally. Right, at the local auditions. Do you have a, a kind of a rule about how many local people you want to have, or it might be none or it might be all? Not really, yeah. There, there really is no rule. I mean, typically if we are casting children, we're, we're always casting locally. Uh, I, I, I've not brought in any Broadway brats to do, to do our shows. Uh, there's so many talented kids here <laughs> in the are. area. Um, so, uh, yeah, typically the, the, uh, we, will, we will hire whoever is right for the role. I I don't really care where anybody lives. That doesn't make a difference. Uh, It just matters if they're right. And how do you choose one over another? Because I'm sure that 80% have awesome experience, are graduates of prestigious theatre programs, and have more acting credentials than you have time to read. So what is it that distinguishes one actor from another? It's interesting. We, we've, we've offered the opportunity uh, for people to actually join us for the New York City auditions. Uh, and I, I mean this with nothing but respect, but civilians who don't necessarily do this on a regular ooh, basis. Ooh, can I apply for next year? <laughs> we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk <laughs> off the air. Um, and it's interesting because uh, they recognize the same thing that we do. And there is that weird it factor thing that is hard to define. Uh, but uh, an actor who is able able to walk into the room comfortably be themselves which not everybody can do that's that that's a challenge uh, but then take the work and bring something of their own humanity to the work whatever the role is uh, we're casting or we're casting uh, Cinderella for example uh, and in this new Broadway adaptation of Cinderella uh, the characters are given a little bit more complexity and depth than they originally were in the Julie Andrews then Leslie and Warren telecast uh, so we want to make sure that the actors that we hire are able to fully embody these characters and, and give them their due. And uh, we had probably three terrific candidates, final candidates for the role. Um, but the one who we ended up going with and, and who has taken the job uh, felt as though she was, uh, and this is of course what any actor should do, but speaking written lines as though they were coming from, from deep within her soul. Uh, so that's the sort of... Uh, 
hard to quantify thing that you're looking for, but uh, you, you do notice when that person walks in the room that also makes you think about the character in a way that you hadn't thought about the character before. Any good director will say that 90% of their work is good casting. And if you can find interesting, complex, dynamic people, uh, it's hard to go, go wrong. Now, every year you bring people into town. So do you have a rule about if you've been in one season, you can't be in the next season? I do not have that rule. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the devil you know uh, beats the devil you don't kind of thinking. Uh, we have the opportunity every year to work with such amazing artists. And if I know that they are great at what they do and, and they're great while they're doing it, then those are the people that I want to work with again. And no, I, I, there have been people that have been with us seven or eight seasons in a row and until somebody comes up to me and says we're sick of seeing you know fill in the blank whoever it is um i'm protecting their identity then you know it's 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 not really an issue i i think that audiences that come to us regularly actually savor the opportunity to see an actor that they've gotten to know by watching their work you see people light up when they look at the playbill and realize oh such and such is in this when i love him or her you know that's a big deal we're not bringing stars in to do our shows but we find that people that have been with us year after year sort of become stars for our audience. Right. Now, presumably, these actors are auditioning all over the country for other shows. So how often do you get turned down? You found the perfect person and they say, no, I'm not taking your rose. Yeah, <laughs> right. Take someone else's right, rose. Right, right, right. It does happen. We have situations where we call somebody to make an offer and between the time that they auditioned for us, they auditioned for six other theaters and they got another one that was going to be a longer running gig or a better paying gig or who knows. That does happen. I'd say more often than not, we get our first choices because people do walk in into the room to audition for us knowing about us and and knowing from their friends that have worked for us that it's a good place to work that people are treated kindly and fairly and that it's a, a, a culture that you want to be a part of uh, people do say that of course I say that but uh, we, we, we do hear that echoed back um, so we do get most of the people that we want but sometimes you know push comes to shove and the actor's life is a fairly mercenary one you have to go where the uh, the money is and you have to pay all those bills so whether you you know, sometimes art loses in, in, in that regard. But then the other thing that happens, and this happens regularly, too, that we get somebody signed up, ready to go, and then Broadway calls or a tour calls or a film calls. And having lived that life myself in New York, I know how rare those opportunities are. I don't get bent out of shape about it. Of course, I'm disappointed to lose people that I think would be great. But, uh, you know, we move on and hopefully we've got good second and third choices ready to go. Now, you are a very established player in the summer season around the country, so people know about the Lyceum Theatre, and they know it's in a little tiny, tiny village, but it's a far cry from the energy and the frenzy of New York. Do some people panic at the science? Has anybody fled the season? I, I know I panicked. Uh, when, I, when I first moved to Arrow Rock, I actually had to sleep with a, a radio on in the bathroom and the TV on in the bedroom, and it was the only way I could fall asleep because it was so it was so quiet, it was loud. And we experience that every year when somebody comes to us for the first time. They're a little panicked. A rural shock, I don't know what you would call it. And it's, I'd say 99% of the time, we, we see that. We see that sort of wide-eyed terror. And then a week later, we see a very comfortable person. And then by the end of the contract, we usually hear from our artists off stage and on that they have, though they worked very hard, and they do work really hard, they experienced a sort of therapeutic uh, working vacation. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, how often do you get to look up and actually see the stars? Right. And how often do you get to walk the streets at night and not hear anything except maybe a coyote in the distance? How often do you have a life where your cell phone really doesn't work very consistently, so you have to un 
unplug from that and actually have a conversation with someone. And it's several miles to the nearest Starbucks. Yeah, it's 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 here. <laughs> Columbia is the closest Starbucks to us. I will tell you, we have uh, members of our creative team that will drive in the morning before a tech process to get Starbucks and then drive back. It's insane to me. <laughs> So we'll talk about your summer season in a little bit later on in the show. But first, I wanted to know about the touring show that you have at the theatre tonight. They describe themselves as part art studio, part rock concert, part creation lab. And they are a multi-sensory expedition packed with wild inspiration. So what and who are Artrageous? Well, they've described themselves far better than I possibly could. <laughs> uh, tonight is going to be really exciting because uh, over the course of their show tonight, we will see all of those things that are promised music dancing singing and and the creation of art right there in, in in front of the audience in conjunction with all of those other things this is a very unique opportunity to see art come to life in a variety of different forms and hopefully there won't be any paint splattered on the seats that's uh, you know always not something actually we're concerned about but it's the thing that <laughs> we always say we're worried about right exactly it's like going to see Shamu you just put up a tarp um, it, it really is going to be a dynamite show and, and the uh, the outrageous folks are so interesting and creative and, and really excited about sharing what they do with an audience and there's a lot of audience participation in the show right yes the uh, the, the audience will be very involved in, 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 in the evening tonight <laughs> and if you if you don't want to be involved if you're not into audience participation? Is there an opportunity to not be? You know, I'm always one of those people that if I'm seeing a show that is going, that where, where there's any risk of someone grabbing me and pulling me up on stage, I always try to get a seat in the middle of the theater and no one can touch you there. <laughs> So people might already have their seats, so they might yeah, give you, call you up and swap it around. <laughs> so they've been touring, Outrageous have been touring since 1990, and they've produced over 3,000 shows, both nationally and internationally, including in Paris and Monte Carlo, Brussels, Tokyo, New Delhi, Thailand, Panama, gosh, all over the place. And in America, they performed in all 50 states, except apparently Delaware. How did you come across them, or did they come across you? I, I believe that they came across us, actually. Uh, the, the, it, it's interesting. We have a uh, a special events committee, which really takes on the uh, the programming for our events outside of our core season. So, uh, you know, my big charge is putting together our eight show season, which is in the summer and Christmas Carol in December. The special events committee puts together a lot of other concerts throughout the year, and of course, we we work hard on those events as well in collaboration with the committee. But they they discovered outrageous, and honestly, I couldn't even tell you how they discovered outrageous. Whether whether they contacted us or we contacted them, but They've, they've done a great job recruiting some really interesting acts. And this is something unlike anything that we've ever had on our stage. So we're, we're eager to see it all play out tonight. And I, I wonder what sort of artwork will be uh, left over that maybe can reappear in my office after the show tonight. Oh, so they will leave the artwork behind. They don't, we'll they see. don't wrap it all up and take we'll it with see. them. <laughs> I'm sure if they're performing every night, they don't want to take all Probably the artwork not. with them. So what is interesting, I think, is that with the proximity of, of places like Jesse Hall and the Missouri Theatre, not to mention Kansas City and St. Louis, that a troupe like Outrageous would choose to land for their one night in Missouri in the smallest, almost smallest town in Missouri. Mm -hmm. How do you secure troops like that? Uh, well, you know, it, 
again, our, our, our reputation helps us in that regard. People know about us, perhaps on a more national scale than and, than some of the other wonderful venues uh, here in Columbia that are opportunities for touring shows to, to land. We aren't really a presenting house like like the concert series. We are largely a producing house, but we happen to also present at the same time. So we get a little bit of an advantage in terms of uh, who knows about us in, in different markets. But also, too, the, I think the real benefit for artists a lot of times performing in Arrow Rock is that it is such an intimate space. As you said before, it's 416 seats. But even in the back row of our 416 seats, you have a very intimate relationship with what's happening on stage. And I think particularly with a show like Artrageous, the audience connection is so critical that it maybe works better in a smaller venue like ours than it would in a larger venue with lots of seats. Now, the experience for the audience really starts as soon as they walk through the door. There are members of the troupe that meet them in the lobby. They're given, I think, a piece of bubble wrap and maybe little light rings and so there's things that they're given that they will use during the performance. I will say that you know more about what's going to happen oh. tonight maybe than I do. Well then that this next question is irrelevant. I was going to say talk us through what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well you know like, like so many of these these touring shows I don't see them until our audience sees them. Uh, you know, we, we know about them and, and, and we've vetted them to the point that we understand what it's going to be but that is an exciting thing for me because I get to sit back and be a surprised audience member with everybody right. else. Well I believe they get a souvenir finger light ring. This is according to their website. So, I mean, you know, it might have changed. It might be out of date. Um, And they pass out large squares of bubble wrap. And the audience is instructed to hang on to it and to await further instructions. Mm. And also you get taught some dance moves. Oh, good. Apparently. So you can join in. I always need some help with that. So how much do you think the show is tailored towards children? Well, I think it's young and young at heart. I think think we'll have a great time with the show. It it is not something that is geared toward children necessarily, but it is also certainly not something that children should feel like they shouldn't be a part of. It it really is about as inclusive a theatrical event as I can imagine. Everyone will be welcome. Everyone will be fine. No one will be upset or offended. (laughs) Um, And I think kids are going to have a great time, but I think adults are going to have a great time as well. Now, also on their website, it says that you can bring your favorite T-shirt, hat or bag to the Outrageous Art Gallery, which can be turned into an original splattered art piece by the Outrageous Artists in their custom splatter zone. Have you got the tarping ready for the custom splatter I have not yet zone? seen the custom splatter zone. I know that that is something that is but being you know offered. Okay. Yes, it, 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 I am prepared for that. Uh, and actually, I have a few things that I need to get splattered before they get out of town. Okay. And I think last time I looked on the website, you had less than 100 seats available. Do you think that it will sell out or do you think people can turn up on the night and get a ticket? I always door? recommend calling ahead because uh, for everyone, a trip to Arrow Rock is a trip to Arrow Rock, uh, except for the 56 of us that live there. It's going to be a drive. So please call ahead visit our website uh, and make sure you have those tickets before you arrive. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Quinn Gresham, the producing artistic director for the Lyceum Theatre in Arrowrock, and we're chatting about the touring production they have at the theatre for one night only tonight called Outrageous. There are probably still tickets available, but uh, you probably want to give them a call. So Quinn, let's turn our attention to the rest of your season. 2019 is your 59th season at Arrowrock. So what have you got lined up? 
Well, right after Artrageous packs their bags, uh, we will be uh, busily preparing for Susicle, which is our Theater for Young Audiences show. Uh, every year now, we do a, a show that is specifically targeted for young audiences. We only have one public performance, which is already sold out. The other remaining performances are all specifically for schools. So we will have packed crowds all week seeing that terrific show. We've lined up a great cast for it. I don't really need to sell it since there's nothing to sell. After that, we have Get Happy, a wonderful Judy Garland tribute. Uh, Angela Ingersoll is the freakishly living embodiment of Judy Garland. It is really the closest thing you will ever have to seeing Judy on stage. It's phenomenal. It really, I can't, I can't speak highly enough about it. Uh, and that's at the end of April. Uh, and then we will uh, be ready to uh, staff up and, and get our season underway. We are opening with the Missouri regional premiere, Missouri professional regional premiere. Basically, this is the first time other than a tour that this production has been seen in the state of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. Now, Cinderella has been around for a while now. I can't remember when the first telecast was with Julie Andrews. Maybe 50s? Maybe early 60s? I can't really remember for sure. Before uh, our time. It, before our time, right, exactly. That's why we don't know. <laughs> uh, and then Leslie Ann Warren went on to do it again uh, in, in a, uh, a, a color version of it on television. Uh, and then there was a terrific version of it uh, with Brandy and Whitney Houston. It's, it, it, it's, it's been resuscitated several times, but never actually for the stage. All of those other productions were for television and, and film. So, uh, at long last, the Rodgers and Hammerstein estate found a way to get a proper stage production put together. Although this, the other version has been seen on stage, what they were seeing was not really written for the stage. And uh, Douglas Carter, being a terrific playwright, looked at the book uh, of the show uh, and thought about it as it relates to modern audiences. I mean, let's face it, Cinderella, as we know it, is kind of a dopey story and not really necessarily about thinking people. It's just more about beautiful people. Uh, and what, what they have done with this new adaptation is make it more about thinking people, being attracted to thinking people, uh, and caring people, being attracted to caring people. Uh, so it, it is really more than just, oh, I, 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 I'm so lucky I get to run off with a beautiful prince, or I'm so lucky this beautiful woman that I'd never met just popped into my life. There's more to it than that. Uh, still with all of the terrific Rodgers and Hammerstein songs that people will remember from the TV versions, also... It's incredibly funny. The new script is really, really smart, really funny, very human, and something that, while it is traditional, is also very applicable to today. And I think younger audiences, as well as older audiences, are really going to respond well to it. Now, we're still over three months out from that. I think it's on in early June, and I was looking on your website, and some of the nights, some of the dates are already almost sold out. More, more than half of the overall run of Cinderella is already sold, uh, which is a terrific problem that we we have been developing, I'm happy to say it's getting worse and worse every year, that uh, people are buying early and they're, uh, you know, it, it is not an uncommon thing for us anymore to have the entire run of a show sold out before it opens. I think Cinderella is likely to find itself in that position very soon, which is great. I mean, that that, that really is the goal. Uh, when, I, when I first got here in 2005, there were empty houses and it was uh, a hard thing to see because of all of the work that goes into putting a production up in front of an audience and now happily we have very full audiences uh, from all over the state who are really uh, excited to enjoy the work that we do but also enjoy it in the surroundings of Arrow Rock with our unique audience that is uh, I, I talk to actors all the time 
about their experience performing the shows in front of our crowd. And almost every single person that I talk to about this specifically says, these are the best audiences we've ever played for. And I don't know what it is. Missourians are wonderful people, sure. We get that. But uh, I, there's something about the intimacy of that theater, the environment where people have shut out the rest of the world, maybe to fixate on something without their attention being scrambled by, you know, all of the devices that no longer work once they're in Arrow Rock. I don't know what it is, but people have that pure communal theatrical experience. When the lights go out, we all become one person. We are all the audience together. It's one of those great unifying moments that, not to get into a deep philosophical discussion about this, but it, it is something that is lacking in our world. Connectivity with 416 people that surely you disagree with on all kinds of things, but you laugh at the same jokes and you cry at the same tragedy. All of these things unite us in, in what I think is a really beautiful way. Arrow Rock is tiny. I mean, there's tiny. 56 people that live there. I think 19 guest rooms available. That's probably right. That's about it. So yeah. if you're coming from far away, they're really isn't anywhere to stay locally so everybody is making a trek there and then traveling home in the dark afterwards in their car and that you know the, the final act when everyone's talking about what they've been doing right. and that just endlessly amazes me where how far afield you pull your audiences from and they really are from the edges of the state and closer as well but people are we we have a statewide audience large numbers of people come from st louis and kansas city and springfield to see our shows and yeah i, I i'm the first to say it's not easy to get to us, but uh, but well worth the effort. I, I, I think that's why we find that our matinees during the summer season end up being filled instantly because that doesn't require a drive home at night. Right. Now, for the folks that have planned their summer out well enough in advance and already have rooms, the bed and breakfasts in Arrow Rock are terrific, all run by folks that value the work that we do, and we certainly value the opportunity and the hospitality that they show uh, our audience members while they're in town. There are also great restaurants in Arrow Rock. There's, there, there's I love so Catalpa. much. Boy, isn't it wonderful? Amazing. I can almost smell the garlic just <laughs> thinking about it. Catalpa is terrific. The, uh, the J. Houston Tavern, which is the oldest continuously operating restaurant this side of the Mississippi has now just reopened under the management of the Friends of Arrow Rock, which is our local preservation group. They had their big opening uh, maybe a week ago, two weeks ago, and there's going to be some terrific food there as well for our audience. So the Arrow Rock experience is what makes the Lyceum Theater so special. And so I encourage people, if they can, to spend some time in the village, visit the shops, visit the restaurants, visit the bed and breakfast, take tours with the Friends of Arrow Rock, learn about Missouri's history, go to the Visitor's Center, take a hike. There's a lot to do in Arrow Rock camp. You can camp in the campground as well. There are so many different ways to experience this rare jewel in Missouri's both historic and artistic landscape. So Cinderella opens the season, the summer season, and then you have All Shook Up. Right. This is a, uh, a show that takes almost every song that Elvis wrote and weaves all of these songs together into a story that isn't about Elvis. There, there is a sort of Elvis-adjacent character who takes on some of those characteristics, but it's a high-energy, fun, uh, fun show about life in the 50s, sort of, but more about... It has its its source in uh, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. There is a sense of unexpected partnerships yielding uh, unexpectedly satisfying love and, and relationships that never would have been uh, perhaps, uh, what's the word I want? In the 50s, a lot of these relationships would not have been the kind of relationships that we would have smiled upon. But uh, it, it really is a heartwarming and very funny and lively show. Lots of great dancing and singing. And then we move on to Nine to Five, the musical. Yes. More singing and dancing. And more singing and dancing. 
Dancing. This is a, uh, the uh, the stage adaptation of the classic film with Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, and Jane Fonda. It, what what makes the musical so great is that Dolly Parton wrote, of course, that theme, 9 to 5, that we all know. I could sing it now, but I won't put you through that. <laughs> it's uh, in my head. Yeah, you're, you're hearing it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but she also, for the musical, wrote all the other songs. Uh, so all the music in it very much feels like Dolly. It is an outrageous story, and an outrageous story that I think is very uh, relevant in the, the moment that we're living in currently. Uh, three women decide that their chauvinistic, bigoted, uh, misogynistic, tyrannical boss needs to go. <laughs> and they put together a plan to see what would happen if the office was actually run by women and not run by this jerk. To great hilarity, actually. But there is also purpose in, in the story, and I, I find it very moving as well. And then the next two are kind of interesting. I'm going to start whistling through them here a little bit. But we have Murder for Two and then Fully Committed. And in Murder for Two, you have two characters playing 13 roles, or two actors playing 13 roles. And in Fully Committed, you have one actor playing 40, 40 characters. Roles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the tour de force portion of our season. And I should say about the Murder for Two actors, not only do they play all those characters, both of them also have to play the piano. So they, they provide the onstage musical accompaniment for that show as well. Uh, two terrific shows. I, I, audiences need to be prepared to laugh, but also to be amazed by what a small handful or just one person can actually do. Then we go on to, we're now at the end of August, Crimes of the Heart, which was a winner of the 1981 Pulitzer Prize. And then uh, the last one of that summer season is Swingtime Canteen, which is in mid to late September. And then you end with A Christmas Carol in December. It'll be our sixth annual production of A Christmas Carol uh, presented by Lamb Tech. So there is a lot going on, yes. as always, and I have another thousand questions that I would ask you. So we're going to have to have you come back before the season starts. I would love that. That would um, be terrific. And then we can continue the chat. I'm going to end our chat with a lovely quote you gave in a Columbia Tribune article from May of last year where you said, that's why we do what we do. Turn off the lights on a variety of different thoughts, opinions, and you get everybody to have a shared experience. And that is something that's lacking in our world very succinctly put. Thank you, Queen Gresham, producing artistic director for the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock. The touring production, Outrageous, will be at the theatre tonight. It's for one night only. Tickets are $40 and can be purchased online at lyceumtheatre.org or by calling the box office on 660-837-3311. And whilst you're there, you can also check out and buy tickets for the whole 2019 season. Thank you so much, Quinn, and come back again soon. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be back with Jim Thaxter from the Mid-Missouri Traditional Dancers. So don't roll away with a half sachet as we're going to need you to do a courtesy turn and be back here in just a couple of minutes.
There was a little snippet from the band Steam playing Exile of Erin for the Atlanta Chattahoochee Country Dancers. A well-known song, no doubt, to my next guest. Jim Thaxter has been calling traditional dancing for almost 25 years, something which he says he just kind of stumbled into. Today he is a master caller and currently the treasurer for the Mid-Missouri Traditional Dancers. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hey, thanks for having me on. <laughs> you were grimacing there. Oh, yeah, master caller. I don't know about that. I thought that's what it said on the website, that you were a master caller. I'm going to refer to you as a master caller. Oh, oh on the website. The well, you know, you can't believe everything you hear on the web. So, <laughs> Is it hard to sit still when you listen to traditional dancing? Like when you hear a song like Exile of Aaron, are you wanting to get out of your seat? and? Oh, sure. St- oh, sure. <laughs> The music makes you want to move your feet, want to dance. It is, yeah. it is very much that way. Um, so tell me what a master caller is and how many years it takes to become one. Um, some people become master callers in, in just a few years, you know, like maybe five or so, because they just do it a lot. They practice a lot. They hang out with other callers and, um, you know, just, just do it. And, and, they, and they have a talent for it, too, which helps a lot. Other people take longer because they don't work at it quite as hard. You know, maybe they uh, aren't quite as into it as don't have the time for it, perhaps. Uh, But a master caller is somebody, well, I don't know if there's a specific definition for a master caller, but a master caller would be somebody who's very familiar with the dance form, uh, very good at uh, explaining the dance moves and conveying that information to the the dancers who need to know it so that they can execute the moves and, uh, and do the dance. Now, there are such things as professional callers right you can you can go to school for calling and become a professional caller if that is your desire um there are workshops you can go to we're, we're, we may be talking about two different kinds of callers Maybe. There, there are there are some square dance callers in what we call the modern western square dance world uh and i think there are schools where you go to learn that calling and right. so you can become a master caller they may have an actual master caller category uh mostly what i do is older time uh, square dance calling and contra dance calling. Uh, contras and squares are pretty f- closely related. A lot of the same moves uh, are found in both both types of dancing. And the old time square dancing we do goes back before the modern Western era, uh, which started right after World War II. So, uh, and um, some callers wanted it to have a little more formality, a little more uh, uniformity of, of the calls all around the country. And so they, they formed a, a group called Caller Lab, and they started doing uh, workshops and putting on classes to teach people how to call. And uh, you have to go to lessons to learn that type of square dancing. Uh, but the older time square dancing also held on, and that's that's more what we do. You don't have to go to lessons to learn how to call or da- how to dance either one. If you show up at a dance, we'll teach you the basics that you need to know in about, oh, 10 or 15 minutes, and then uh, uh, you start dancing with people who know what they're doing, and they'll help pull you through the moves, and uh, you learn learn a lot faster by doing that way. You have a, a lovely website. It's incredibly extensive with a huge amount of information on it. And one of the things I like, and I've heard from other people, is how much you stress the welcome to beginners and how if you are an experienced dancer, your job is not to be super flashed with your flourishes. Your job is to help a beginner. And somebody I was talking to, I think last night or a couple of nights ago, said that they had gone along to a dance and just how incredibly welcoming you are what an awesome group of people 
So I think that's part of your mission is to help people become dancers. Yes, it is. That's uh, we like to dance, and we've 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 had a group around here since. Uh, been f- somewhat formally organized since the late 70s, probably. Well, not formally since the 70s, but since the late 80s, maybe, for the formal organization. But the dancing's been around since the late 70s in this area. Uh, and um, we, we couldn't continue without having new people come to, to join us to help keep our, our group going strong. And so we have, you know, since since you don't have to go to lessons, we have to welcome people and make them feel comfortable with what they're doing when they come or they won't want to come back again. So it's, it's, it's really, um, it's not only a necessity for our, our mission to keep the dance going, but it's also just kind of the way we are. We, we like to welcome new people and, um, you know, we, we think it's important to be nice to people, which which is to help them get through the dances and learn how to do it. What are some of the misconceptions people have, do you find, of traditional dancing? A lot of people think it's going to be hard, and when you watch it, it looks confusing uh, because it, it's just a lot of activity going on. And it, it's not what most people are used to seeing on a dance floor. Most people are used to seeing just, just a mass of people out on a floor just kind of, you know, groove into the music like... Doing their own thing. Uh, yeah, doing their own thing. <laughs> and this this is totally different from that. There's a caller who uh, instructs the dancers, you know, gives them the, the moves that they're going to do. And um, you have a partner. And then in contra dancing, you dance two couples together. So you and your partner are dancing with another couple. And you're in a line of all these two couple sets and so you go through a series of figures with uh, your neighboring couple you move on to another neighboring couple go through the same series of figures with them and you keep your partner but you get new neighbors every time and so you get to dance with everybody in your line up and down the set that way um and so to watch people doing that really looks confusing. And you wonder, how do they know who they're dancing with? How do they keep track of their partner? Who's their neighbor? How, you know, what are they doing? And, and, and it does look confusing. But once you get into it and you go through a dance a few times, you start to see that there's, there's a pattern to it. There's an organization to it. And um, it's, uh, and, and like we said, we're talking about with people helping each other you know, as long as you got somebody kind of guiding you in the right direction, you can find your new neighbors, stay with your partner, and get through the dance. And so, the, probably the biggest misconception is that it's it's just way too difficult. Uh, but uh, but that it only looks that way from the outside. And you don't have to bring a partner with you. You can find a partner once you get there. So it's a great evening for singles to come along to. Oh, yeah, that's correct. There are, there are quite a few couples who come. And uh, the couples don't always dance with their, their, their partner all night long. They might only do a couple of dances with their partner during the evening. But uh, that's part of how we, we work new dancers into the dance is we invite new people in. You know, we make sure that the experienced dancers ask a new person to dance so that the inexperienced people have somebody to guide them through and show them show them how to do it. It would be tough if there was just a couple that were completely new and they were just stumbling around at the end. They need to be with an, they need to split up and be with an experienced person. Uh, yeah, we try to do that. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes they're a little resistant to it and we say, well, okay, we're not going to force it, but well, you know, we just know that we have to kind of watch out for them and and do a little extra guiding for two people instead of just having one person that that needs to be uh, directed. 
How, how did you get into calling? You started dancing, obviously, long before you were calling. What yeah. prompted you to get behind the microphone and, and guide everybody? Um, it was just a, 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 a kind of a challenge to, to take my dancing to the next level. So, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun to dance, and I thought it also looked like it would be fun to direct people, do the calling, uh, pick the dances that, that people could do, and do dances that I, uh, that I enjoy doing, and share those with the other people, too. And um, there was only, when I started calling, or started dancing around Columbia here, there was basically one caller who was doing all of it and uh, so I kind of started to to give us a little more variety and to, to give the other caller a little bit of a break so he didn't have to call all the time. How many callers are there today? Today we've got uh, three callers in Columbia. Oh, so not not hugely different. We're from still the not, not hugely different. No, it's <laughs> um, a gap in the market. We've had we've had several come and go in the in the time that I've been calling here, but right now we have three. Do you remember your first night of calling? Was it was it nerve wracking? Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. It's always embarrassing, almost sometimes, and uh, you know, gets the sweat going. When you get up in front of a group of people and you're doing something, talking about something that you've never talked to people about before, you've done it, but you know, it's a different thing to know in your mind how to do something and then to explain it to somebody else how to do it. So you have to find the right words to use, and sometimes you you give people direction and you watch them do something that you didn't expect them to do, but then you think that, oh, that's exactly what I told them to do. <laughs> And, uh, you know, so you, you have to figure out that there's, there's a good way to explain things and a, and a not so good way. And, and <laughs> what happens if you call the wrong step or you see people going wrong? How do you resolve that? Do you have to just stop the dance and start again? Or do you have to think on your feet and work out what to tell people yes, to both get of back? Those, both of those things can work. Uh, yeah, sometimes it breaks down so badly that you just say, okay, everybody stop, find a new partner, or find your partner and find another couple to line up with, and we'll wait for the music to come around and we'll get started again. Other times, um, I, yeah, I've, 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 I make mistakes when I call. I make mistakes when I dance. And sometimes when I make a mistake, sometimes the dance is forgiving enough that uh, I can just switch two moves around. So if I get ahead of myself and I call the wrong move, I can just back up and call the other one that should have been called uh, next. And, and, and that gets everybody back on track. Um, does each other ways other ways are and sometimes I'll, I'll make the wrong call and uh, it's been far enough into the dance people have figured out what the the sequence of moves is and I'll, I'll make the wrong call and they just kind of look at me and say no we're not doing that we're, we're going to do the one that we know goes in here so so sometimes it's get the, the dance corrects itself does each dance have a fixed set of calls or are you you're choreographing the whole thing you are deciding what calls to make all the way through a, a piece of music um i don't the last thing you're describing there is called hash calling where for the caller just starts giving out calls and um 
is watching the dancers and kind of keeps track of where the partners are, where the neighbors are, to keep everybody going in the, in the right directions. And I don't do that. It takes a lot of concentration. It takes a lot of uh, 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 planning ahead in your mind to, to get people going where you want them to go. So most of the dances that, in fact, pretty much all the dances I call are actually choreographed. They're written down. I have them written down on three by five cards or you know, someplace. Cheat sheets. And there are a few that I have in my in my head that I have memorized, but most of them I have 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 to have written down. And um, the the dances are made up of about twelve to fifteen basic moves that we do: circling left and right, right hand star. So four people put their right hand into the middle of their group and walk around in a star. Uh, taking your partner by the right hand and walking around each other. Do si do, ladies chains, things like that. So there are about fifteen different moves like that uh, and so the people who write the dances pick moves from those from that list and put them together so that the dance flows together so that you can move from one move right into another uh, with uh, you know with with kind of a, a smooth transition between the moves and um, so that's kind of how those dances work uh, I, I've, I've written a few dances some of them are, are pretty good others are not as good as most other people have written so I, I generally stick with what, what I've gotten from other people uh, they're published in a lot of books you can find a lot of dances online you know all the all the modern ways of, of doing research on things like that how many different calls are there I mean it's this is a global language so you could walk into a contra slash square dance event in Japan or China or France and they're all saying do si do and using the same glossary I believe how well, many they, what is the big internet how many terms are there uh, there are yeah well, well for about the 15 moves that there are there are that many calls for, you know ladies chain across left hands in the middle for a left hand star and so you can you can walk into any dance in any english speaking country or i could anyway uh, since i mostly speak english and and i could i could understand what they were talking about and uh the dances are, are yeah, the other the call the dances the calls the moves are all uniform uh across the country um but if I went to France or Japan or some country where I don't know the language, they would probably be doing the calls in their native language. And I'd, I'd be at a little bit of a loss there. I, w <laughs> I, I would have to rely more on sight and watch, watch right. what other dancers are doing rather than relying on uh, my ears to listen to what the caller is saying because I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> I thought do si do is the same in every language. <laughs> uh, well, you know, something like that might be, but but I, I know in France they they use uh, mostly use French for their calls, and I'm not sure about other countries that much. But there are, I mean, you know, there there are some some terms not just in dancing but just in general that um, have been adopted across. Uh, across international lines. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about the events you have, or the event you have coming up at the end of March, your 18th annual Spring Breakdown Contra Dance Weekend. What is the event all about and who can attend? Uh, the event is all about dancing, as you might imagine. Uh, this is the 18th annual one that we've done. We, we start on Friday evening. We have a three-hour dance on Friday evening. We get together for a little uh, conversation and visiting afterwards at a at a local local place, and uh, there'll probably be jam sessions and uh, 
food shared, drinks shared, things like that. On Saturday, we have workshops, three workshop sessions, one in the morning that's going to be on community dancing, and uh, which will be appropriate for families and uh, intergenerational activities uh, uh, for people to participate in. I'll be the caller for that. We'll have a live band for it. Uh, so this is one of those where, where you can come in and in five minutes, I'll have you dancing and just doing some really easy stuff. And then we kind of build from the first dance and add a little bit more to, to the second dance and, and work up like that. And, um, you know, I, I, I teach dances to, to kids in schools for the elementary school sometimes. And so, you know, if, if you can do that, uh, you're good and uh, you know it's a lot of fun for adults too and, and it's really a nice thing for families to do together uh, we'll also have an international folk dancing workshop on Saturday which I think also does not require any previous experience uh, a clogging workshop which is a rhythmic dancing um, solo dancing that you can do to the music and uh, that's also for beginners so the, the instructor will start from the beginning on that and teach you some basic stuff to get started on adding a little bit of rhythm to the to the music that you hear as you want to dance to it and then we'll have a, a dance uh, workshop for more experienced dancers uh, creative workshop or creative contras is what it's going to be called and you'll need to know a little bit about contra dancing before you come and try to start that one and then Saturday night we'll have another dance another party afterwards and then on the Sunday we have a brunch and um, another dance in the afternoon to say goodbye to all our friends who've come in. We'll have people come in from, from surrounding states. We've had people come as, from as far away as Florida, uh, California, um, Wisconsin, New York State, all over the country. Mostly they're from the Midwest here uh, because people will travel for three, four, five, six hours to get to a dance weekend. And there, there are these types of weekends going on all over the country almost every weekend so the whole thing is about getting together with uh, friends that we only see every once in a while at these dance weekends uh, having a good time dancing together sharing stories with each other and, and just just enjoying each other's company tell me a little bit about clogging is that like tap dancing or you, you i mean you're, you're using the clogs to create a sound in the same way that tap does yeah. right clogs um clogs are if, if you think of Dutch people, they, they wear wooden clogs, which go clop, clop, clop on the, on the, on the hard floor. And uh, we don't wear wooden shoes. There, are Engli there is English clogging, and they, they, they wear wooden-soled shoes, which really sounds nice. Uh, for American clogging, some people sometimes wear metal taps on their shoes, so which is kind of related to tap dancing. And the basic steps of clogging and tap dancing are the same. And from there, it kind of takes off, and they separate, and there's there's a little bit of difference. But it's uh, yeah, it's a rhythmic dancing. Uh, it can be done solo. There are groups that do it together, and they, they do choreographed moves, kind of like square dancing or contra dancing. Uh, and there are performance groups that that do that. Uh, so it's it's oh yeah, it's just a solo uh, percussive dance. Hmm. So you, yeah, it's kind of solo or in a group. It can it can be either way. Right, right. So obviously, I grew up in England, and English country dancing is something that I'm a little more familiar with, although I've never actually done it. But it, you know, it's part of your culture. Uh, okay. um, yeah. So how how is English country dancing different from its cousin across the pond, mm. contra dancing? Are there similar moves? Is there a big difference between them? 
there are similar moves, but they're maybe called different things. So what we call a do-si-do in, in American dancing, uh, the English country dancers call a back-to-back, which is a little more descriptive than do-si-do for us, but um, um, do-si-do coming from a, a French term. Um, um, there are some other moves that are different. English country dancing is, you might say, the, 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 the older brother or the older... Uh, the ancestor of, of uh, contra dancing, because it all comes from from back in uh, well England for English country dancing, of course. Uh, and and the unique thing about English dancing was that couples danced together, uh, like I described for the contra dances. The two couples dance together. You can move on and dance with another couple. So that was that was kind of a, a unique thing that was going on in England. Uh, as opposed to um, the folk dances that were done in France or or Germany or England or um, pardon me not England but uh, Spain Ireland uh, you know other European countries um, and then as people came to this country they brought of course their music and their dance and their culture with them and then uh, after after about the the uh, late 1700s there was a little bit of a a disagreement between the two sides of the ocean, you know, and and so the American side started doing their own thing, and and uh, they wanted to break from some of those English ways, and uh, so contra dancing kind of developed from that. Also, our modern square dancing, because some of the older English dances were also done in square formations, four couples together in a in a in a set uh, of their own. Um, so they're they're really very connected. But um, we've we've kind of developed different things that we do here in America now. Now, contra dancing and square dancing, you can do particular formations to many different uh, musical tunes. Is English country dancing usually fixed to a particular song? So each dance has its own music that goes with it. Very often, yes. Um, there were uh, there was a guy named John Playford back in the late 1600s. He he published the first book of uh, English dances and he published music that went along with each dance and so those those tunes became associated and they probably were already associated with the dances they were already together as he collected those things and uh, it, people are always writing new dances the dance styles change um, over the years so uh, we still do some of the dances that Playford had collected that were published in those first books and he, he continued publishing more books every year for about the next he and his son did for about the next mm, 30 or 40 years and other people did too so we've got a, a whole lot of written records of people were, what people were dancing back then now, mid-Missouri traditional dances, you have contra dance evenings, and there is one coming up tonight. And um, but you also have special, uh, sorry, you have separate events that are English country dancing evenings. So you separate them out, and if you want to do English country dancing, you can go to a specific evening for oh, it, yes, right? Yes. And, and do you have any of those coming up? Uh, we dance <clears throat> generally do those on the second Friday of every month. Uh, but we only do about eight of them during the year. So we we don't dance from October through May for the English dances. So we have two more coming up in uh, April and May, second second Friday of the month. And we dance at a different place, too. You can find uh, find out where we dance, all of our dances, at mmtdcolumbia.org. 
So yeah, there's everything is on the website. Oh, yeah. I love the whole history of the organization okay. and the tips for beginners and tips for advanced dancers and lots of information about the weekend that's coming up. And tonight you also have uh, an event, which is your regular contra dance evening, right? Yes, yes, we dance tw- generally twice a month, first and third Fridays. If there's a fifth Friday in the month, we dance that too. Uh, and anybody's welcome to come to those. We charge $8 for adults, $5 for youth 16 to 26 years old, or students with an ID. If you're under 16, you can come and dance with us for free. Uh, so, you know, people bring their kids sometimes. Uh, we don't recommend trying to get kids younger than about 7 or 8 years old out to dance with us because they often don't have the uh, attention span to to learn the learn the moves and listen to the dances, but if if they but there are some kids that really get to be good at it and get to be better than their parents and and some of the adults and they they really really like it. So we we like to dance with anybody who wants to learn. And you should not wear cowboy boots or or shoes with a kind of a, a spiked surface or something. Oh, There's a tip on your website for like you know bring soft shoes. Uh, yeah, soft soled or leather soled shoes or leather soled are, are really the best. We dance on a wooden floor. Uh, at the Ballroom Academy of Columbia. And so we try to protect their floor because we rent the place from them. We want to want to help them out. Uh, the ballroom dancers generally dance with, I think, leather-soled shoes. You get a little bit of slide in your feet, but not too much. So it's it's not slick, but you want to have a little bit of flexibility. It's, it's not like... Uh, uh, you don't want your feet gripping the floor like like basketball players do, or you know they have to turn on a dime and do things like that. We we, we want a little more flexibility. So you can come along tonight. Uh, you can get a feel of the uh, contra dancing, and then if you want to come to the spring breakdown, it is super easy to get tickets via the website. At, uh, say it again, mmtd mmtd Colum- mmtdcolumbia.org. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh I've, I was on mmtd.wordpress.com, but I'm sure it all links up to the same thing. But you can just yes. Google Mid-Missouri yeah. Traditional Dancers yeah. and then follow the links. It's very, very easy. People can buy tickets for individual components of the weekend or get an all-inclusive ticket for $80, excluding food and drink, but for all the events, $80. Right. Yes. Um, the Mid-Missouri Traditional Dancers Spring Break Time will be at Capitol Ritz in Jefferson City, March 29th to 31st. You can pay cash or check and register on the door. Any chance that it'll sell out? Probably not. No, we never have. Uh, okay. The, uh, the Capitol Ritz in Jeff City is a, it's a nice big venue, so we we can get probably two or three hundred people in there. We usually have about one hundred twenty-five to one hundred and fifty people come for the weekend. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jim Thaxter. I could ask you lots more questions about um, English country dancing and, and square dancing and contra dancing. Um, you are, whether you like it or not, known as a master caller for the mid-Missouri traditional dancers. <laughs> so, may your do dos be sprightly and your dances all resolve. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, we will take a whistle-stop tour of some of the arts events that are going to be vying for your attention over the next seven days. Jimmy, you are free to stay or free to scarper. It's up to you. Thanks. At Studio 4 on Hit Street, you can see the University of Missouri Theatre Department's production of the Samuel Beckett classic play Waiting for Godot. There are evening performances tonight and tomorrow at 7.30, plus a final 2pm matinee on Sunday. Tickets are $16, but do call the box office as many of the performances, Wednesday and Thursday, and I think tonight, um, are sold out. So you've got Saturday and Sunday, and it is absolutely excellent. At the Stevens College Playhouse, you can see their gender-bending production of 
Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. This is a one weekend only show, so you'll need to see it tonight or tomorrow at 7.30 or catch the 2pm matinee on Sunday. And tickets are also $16. Greenhouse Theatre Project opens their living room one-act performances this weekend. The three-night run takes place in a different local living room each night. Space is limited to 50 tickets for each performance, so this is definitely an event you need to get a ticket for in advance. Tickets are 16 if any are still available. Tonight and tomorrow, the University Concert Series presents Show Me Operas, The Magic Flute at the Missouri Theatre, and tickets are 23. At the Blue Note, the previously postponed Missouri Blues Fest takes the stage at 7pm with Ina Cook, The Bel Airs, King Benny, Al Holiday and the East Side River Band. At Rose Music Hall, the 13th installment of the Rose Risque Burlesque and Variety Show returns tonight, hosted by Bourbon LaRue and Magenta Moscato. Show starts at 9.30 and you'll need $8 to get through the doors. And at the Museum of Art and Archaeology, it's Art in Bloom all weekend with the official opening reception and preview tonight from 7 till 9. The Boone History and Culture Centre continues its Meet the Author series on Saturday morning with the managing editor of the Missouri Review, Mark McKee, who will talk about his forthcoming poetry collection, Meta Meta Make Belief. Mark's talk is at 10.30 in the morning and is free and open to all. Saturday evening, Girl Rilla Theatre returns to Talking Horse Theatre with the Meg Phillips Crespi adaptation of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. This is a free event thanks to sponsorship by the University of Missouri's Programme for Inclusion, Diversity and Equity. And that show starts at 7.30. At Rose Music Hall, Don't Mind Dying and the Barroom Billies are on stage at 9 for a $5 entry free fee. And Saturday night at Jesse Hall, the Live and Laugh, or maybe it's Live and Laugh, a comedy show rolls into town. That show starts at 9pm and tickets are $46. And if you've wanted to try your hand at improv, a new short form improv troupe called The Ponies is looking for founding members. And we'll be holding auditions at Talking Horse Theatre on Sunday afternoon at 2pm. No need to prepare anything because it's improv. Tuesday night, the Stable Boys are back with their long-form improv at Talking Horse Theatre for their one-year birthday extravaganza. And they have roped me into being a guest monologist. The Maybe Better Than Average Bake Off show starts at 7.30 and tickets are $10. I actually said that on last week's show because I thought it was last Tuesday and I turned up very excitedly ready for my monologue on Tuesday and it was the wrong night. So it is this coming Tuesday, the 19th of March. At Skylark Bookshop on Tuesday, you can hear the second of four rounds of poetry from seven high school teams who make up the mid-Missouri chapter of the National Youth Poetry Slam a competition called Louder Than a Bomb. The performances get underway at six o'clock. And the University Concert Series presents the Russian String Orchestra at the Missouri Theatre at 7pm next Tuesday with tickets starting at 28. Wednesday evening, the Unbound Book Club meets at Skylark Bookshop for a discussion with the festival's director of poetry, Gabe Freed, about some of the poets who will be appearing at this year's Unbound Festival, which is coming up on April 19th and 20th. On to Thursday, the annual Plowman Chamber Music Competition and festival kicks off next Thursday with a Brahms piano solo recital at First Baptist Church by internationally re- renowned pianist Wei Yi Yang. Admission to the concert is free, though donations are gratefully accepted. The festival and competition continue through next weekend. At Daniel Boone Regional Library, acclaimed storyteller and actress Megan Wells is speaking as Eleanor Roosevelt and she tells the story of Eleanor's youth and her early years at the White House. 
The evening is called Eleanor Roosevelt, How I Learned to Serve. And it's from 7 till 8 p.m. in the library's Friends Room. And that's free and open to all. No pre-registration is required. And environmental journalist and author Andrew Reeves will be in town to talk about his book, Overrun, Dispatches from the Asian Carp Crisis. You can hear him talk at Skylark Bookshop from 6 till 7.30 next Thursday evening. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxett, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.